This is The Guardian. A hundred days since Russia invaded Ukraine, we look back on a war that's changed the world and where it might be going next. On 21st of February, I was sleeping in my bed. My father woke me up and asked me, did you hear that? I told no, I didn't, because I slept. <laughs> Vladimir Kasenich is a 22-year-old from Kyiv in Ukraine. He told that I heard some bursts. I think it's like a bomb explodes. And I think Russia started a war. We opened the social media's web pages, and it was written that the Russian army crossed the Ukrainian borders, and the war started. It was the morning of the 24th of February, a bit over 100 days ago. At 5.30am, Moscow time, a pre-recorded address by Vladimir Putin begins to be broadcast on Russian TV. The Russian president says he's been left with no other options. The NATO alliance has created an anti-Russia on his borders, he says. He announces what he calls a special military operation aimed at the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. Before he's finished speaking, the first missiles land. We decided to go to the country house of my grandparents. While riding there, I went to a refueling station and came up out of my car and heard bursts, maybe a couple of hundred meters next to me. It was like a first real explosion that was near me. It was the first explosion I can remember. When you heard that explosion go off when you were at the refueling station, what do you remember feeling and thinking? You know that something exploded near you. You don't know what exploded. You don't know will it explode closer in a couple of seconds. And the only thing you may do is try to find some coverage in order to protect yourself from the next explosions. So it's like a feeling I don't want no one to feel at least one in their life because it's like terrifying experience. But now Ukrainians feel that each day. The explosions that day marked the end of an era in Europe, but also the end of an idea that trade and prosperity, iPhones and Instagram and IKEA furniture, could cool the impulses that had led to so much bloody history. That centuries of violent struggle between the continent's major powers might be a thing of the past. Now, European cities were burning again, and millions of people were on the move. That night, day one of the war, Volodymyr went to bed knowing he'd wake up to a new life. I slept for hours. It wasn't a long sleep, so it was kind of the first night of nightmares. 
because you know the first day you felt so much you understood that something terrible is happening in your country from the guardian i'm michael safi today in focus 100 days of the war in ukraine On the 25th of February, the second day of the war, the scale of the Russian invasion is becoming clear. At this hour, it appears the largest city in Ukraine, Kyiv, with a population of almost 3 million, is under attack. Reports from the ground say explosions... On the outskirts of the city, at the Hostomel airport, perhaps the most consequential battle of the war is already raging. If Russian forces can secure the airfield, they can quickly move men and equipment right to the edge of the Ukrainian capital yes, and mount a huge assault. Peter, Hostomol Airport. It's actually now under the control of the Russians. They're everywhere, pushing into towns in the east, raining missiles on port cities like Odessa and Mariupol in the south. The Chernobyl power plant, the site of the worst nuclear disaster in history, has been taken over by Russian military forces and holding civilian workers hostage. There's a sense of doom in Kyiv. Gunfire all over the city, including near the presidential compound. There are rumours that Russian hit squads have parachuted inside Kyiv, looking for President Zelensky. He was meant to speak to Italy's Prime Minister in the morning, but Mario Draghi tells the Italian parliament that Zelensky missed the call. His voice breaks as he says it. To fill the silence, MPs start clapping in solidarity. <clears throat> Across the country, Ukrainians are making incredibly difficult decisions to go west, away from the invasion, or to stay and defend their homes. I talked to my father, asked him, what are we going to do to protect us? First of all, we built barricades, something not to let the tanks drive near our house and our neighbors' houses. Men in the area are banding together to form a defence unit. Volodymyr and his dad join in. They told that we are now part of a territorial defence. They told what to do when the column riding near you, when you see a tank, when you see enemies, what to do in different cases. And Volodymyr, you had never been a fighter before. What were you thinking as they were giving you instructions on how to attack a tank column? I mean, what do you think in that moment? It feels like I need to do something special I've never done in my life before. It was a little bit scary because you have a gun. It's not a toy and could even kill someone. So it was like a mental aspect when you need to switch from a life when you like try to solve all your conflicts by talking, by trying to find a solution. But now that person will kill me or I will kill him. That evening, during a pause in the shelling, Zelensky resurfaces. He posts a 32-second video, one that he's shot himself on the streets of Kyiv. He's flanked by four other officials, and he moves the camera to each one. They're all still here, he says. He focuses the camera on himself last. The president is here, he says. By day four, Europe is coming together in revulsion. Only a dozen kilometers from the EU's eastern border, 
The Russian army is committing barbaric actions during its invasion of Ukraine. Russian banks are being cut off from the global financial system. We commit to ensuring that a certain number of Russian banks are removed from SWIFT. Major companies like Shell, BP, Disney, Ford suspend their operations in Russia or pull out altogether. Germany, which for decades since World War II has shied away from building up its military, announces it's creating a 100 billion euro defence fund. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has ushered in a, quote, new era in world history. Vladimir had had an office job. All of a sudden, he was a defence volunteer, spending his nights in a forest outside Kyiv. He'd been given a gun, older than he was, and was keeping watch for Russian paratroopers landing behind Ukrainian lines. The first time Today in Focus spoke to Vladimir was that day, day four. It was an interview I'll never forget. We're just trying to understand if there are any sounds like snow is cracking under their shoes. Maybe they will smoke a cigarette or we will hear plane above us. So we are looking for something like that. As we talked, I remember thinking, this guy might not be alive in a week. I think that in the situation with the highest probability to be killed because you just four or five of you in the forest without any protections, just with guns. One of Vladimir's friends, a history student called Kirillo Demchenko, joined the army just the night before. One of thousands of young Ukrainians who answered a call to protect their country. He was given a gun, but there weren't enough helmets or armour to go around. He was immediately deployed to a highway on the outskirts of Kyiv. And within a few hours, spotted Russian soldiers. First fight, we were near to Kyiv Circle Road. And uh, sincerely, I forgot everything from that night. Because for me, it's like a terrible story from the previous life. Kirillo, was that the first time you had fired a gun at someone? Yes, and uh, <laughs> it is so terrible, it is so cruel. And I remember music of the war with some bomb attacks, with shooting of the guns. I remember bullets which are lighting when they are flying. I remember anti-aircraft missiles. But I think that a lot of soldiers from my company and a lot of soldiers from Ukrainian army will say you the same story because... <laughs> 23 of February, we were in a peaceful country with a small war in Donbass. And our everyday problems with tea and coffee in our offices and with wine and whiskey in our houses. And one day after the 23 of February, the next day, our life will change it in 180 grades. <laughs> By day nine, Friday the 4th of March, the value of Russia's currency has plummeted. On this Russian business channel, this economist drank to the death of Russia's stock market, much to the horror of the host. Putin has signed a law that means you can go to jail for 15 years for reporting false news, for even calling the war a war. A few days ago, the Russian president announced that his country's nuclear forces were going on high alert. Nobody is quite sure what that means, but they get the message. Top officials of leading NATO countries are making aggressive statements about our country. 
On the ground in Ukraine, Russian forces are doing worse than expected. Soldiers are running out of fuel and food, abandoning tanks. Some of them end up getting pulled off the road by Ukrainian tractors. But in one city, Mariupol, close to the Russian border in the southeast, a disaster is taking shape. We have no drinking water. It's about 10 to 12 degrees centigrade in our flats. We have no gas. We are freezing. We have no food. Man, loot here. Hundreds of civilians have already been killed in Russian shelling. The ones that are left are surrounded, running out of food and water. A Guardian foreign correspondent, Emma Graham Harrison, followed the story of one of those families. The Chekhanatsky family are Elena, the mom, Yegor, the dad, Artem, who's 12, and Dmitry, who's 17. At the start of this war, like a lot of people in Mariupol, they think they have some idea of what might be coming because the city had been taken over briefly by forces loyal to Russia in 2014. We've been hearing about clashes in the city of Mariupol between Ukrainian forces and pro-Russian activists. There have been shelling in the city, so a lot of people think that maybe this fighting is going to last a few days, that they can ride it out in their basement. And Yegor worked at the Azovstal plant on the edge of the city. What kind of place is that? It's a huge site. It's a steelworks. And it was built during the Cold War. And so almost every building has a bunker underneath it. About 10,000 people were working there before the war. And Emma, at what point does the Chekhanatsky family go and seek shelter at the Azovstal plant? So they're at home for a few days. The power goes. They start making trips to and from the plant to the bunker, which still has electricity, to charge their phones so they have some connection to the outside world. And after a few days, the fighting gets so intense that they decide it would be safer, in fact, to move into the bunker. So they try to persuade some of their friends, their neighbours to come with them. A lot of people say they don't want to leave their homes, they're too old, they're too unwell. So the family who are incredibly generous, decide to distribute all their food, their supplies, rather than taking it with them. They decide that their neighbours are even more vulnerable than them. And so they head to the shelter with really very little except the clothes on their back and their dash and spike. By day 13, the 8th of March, outside Kiev, a convoy of Russian tanks and armoured vehicles is getting closer. Kiev this morning is staring down the barrel of a Russian assault column that's reportedly up to 40 miles long. Vladimir is there in the capital, helping the city prepare itself for a Russian attack he thinks is inevitable. I am at home now. My home is on the left bank of the river. We spoke to him that day. Many C4, like explosion, is planted into the bridge in case the invasion will start. They will just burst bridge and get rid of them. Despite the threat hanging over everyone, he says people are optimistic. Today I was staying into a big queue to buy some medicine. People in queue, they were really happy and they discussed when to start planting everything like potato, carrots, because in two months it's time to start planting it in order to grow in a certain time to sell it then. So they have a lot of plans for the future and they're sure we will win. We kept in touch with Vladimir over the next few days. 
I'm, I'm still alive. I'm still in a safe place. Kiev and our territorial defense is preparing for a big battle for Kiev. It will be really a big battle. It could be compared to battle for Kiev. It wasn't World War II. While he waits for the Russians to come, Vladimir tries to take advantage of the small pockets of normal life that still exist in the city. The day before yesterday, I had a possibility, I finally found it, to cut my hair. So I was at a hairdresser. <laughs> it was really interesting that the master, he was cutting my hair while the anti-aircraft system worked maybe in a couple of kilometers near us. In the meantime, in the UK, the war is prompting changes that campaigners say were years overdue. Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch who bought Chelsea nearly 20 years ago, starting a multi-billion dollar era for the English Premier League, is officially sanctioned by the British government. People hope it might be the end of decades of dirty Russian money finding a welcome home in London. On day 20, the 15th of March, Kyiv is still holding out and gets a surprise visit. The European Union has to give very quickly a candidate status and more than this. The prime ministers of the Czech Republic, Poland and Slovenia travel to the city to meet with President Zelensky. This is a remarkable, remarkable statement of solidarity to go to somewhere like Kyiv in the middle of a bombardment there. You'd be hard pressed. The sight of foreign leaders in a city that's felt like it could be attacked any day starts to raise hopes that maybe it's going to hold out. In Mariupol, though, it's looking like just a matter of time before Russia seizes the city. For three weeks, Mariupol has been the loneliest, most dangerous place on Earth. The next day, the 16th of March, Russian bombs strike a theatre, one that's being used as a refuge for civilians. Good evening. We have seen perhaps the most confronting blast in the Ukraine war zone so far, an atrocity that was enough for the US president to brand Vladimir Putin a war criminal. They've written children in big letters out the front, but it doesn't save them. An investigation by the Associated Press later estimates that at least 600 people died in the bombing. While all of this is going on, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators have been talking. And on day 33 of the war, Russia's negotiating team makes an announcement. What appears to be the first steps towards peace in Ukraine. Russia With their troops bogged down in different parts of the country and casualties estimated to be as many as 15,000 Russian soldiers, they say the Ministry of Defence has decided to ease the fighting around Kyiv and other cities. Well, tonight, Western governments are sceptical. They are warning that this could be a move to buy the Russian military more time before its next big attack. And after a few days, Russian troops start to withdraw. For the first time, Vladimir can reach friends who have been inside occupied areas like Bucha, a suburb outside Kyiv, and another, Opin. Terrible stories begin to circulate about what's been happening behind Russian lines. Some friends of mine now in Irpin is a city near Kyiv that was captured. And many civilians tell many really scary things about how Russians behave there when they are just stealing things from other people's houses and flats. 
they're just shooting the civilians, riding rear tanks on them. On day 37, the 2nd of April, the first journalists enter the liberated areas around Kyiv, including Bucha. And what they find there shocks the world. As Ukrainian forces have re-entered areas close to the capital, Kiev, after the Russians retreated, they have reported finding hundreds of bodies and mass graves in the town of Bucha. This image shows a shallow grave in Motajin, south and west of Bucha. Three of the bodies have been identified as those of the village mayor, her husband and her son. The war crimes that Russia is committing in Ukraine are raising pressure on countries like Germany, which on the one hand condemns the civilian killings and other crimes against humanity, but on the other, continues paying Russia millions of dollars every month for gas and oil. By the 7th of April, day 42 of the war, the ruble is back to where it was before the fighting started. Well, the ruble took a massive hit when Russia invaded Ukraine, but now the currency appears to be bouncing back. Part of this is financial engineering, the kind of thing that isn't really sustainable. But a big part of the ruble's resurgence is that gas and oil prices are surging off the back of the war. And Russia exports a lot of oil and gas. Both it and Ukraine also export a lot of wheat. Food prices around the world were already really high. But the fighting has sent them soaring. People like Bassem al-Hussein are worried about being able to feed their families. I have a family of eight. Bread is really expensive. We used to buy this for two and a half lira. Now it's five lira. Countries like Egypt and Lebanon are taking emergency measures to try to stop their people from starving. Ukraine has surprised the world. It survived the onslaught. When we speak to Vladimir on day 54, he says life's getting back to normal in Kyiv. The situation has really changed. It's much safer here and much calmer. There are many cars in the streets. Much people are coming back. We do not hear the siren and we don't hear the rocket burst so often as it was before. We don't need to turn off the light in the evening. Vladimir had been so optimistic at the beginning of the war when things looked terrible. I thought now he'd be over the moon, but he wasn't like that. He felt like it was wrong somehow to start getting back to your old life in a country where so many were still suffering and dying. You can see people who are drunk. It's not okay during this period because you can see like a guy in a military form with a gun who is really prepared to fight for our country, to defend us. And you can see like a drunk guy coming from a bar. It's a little bit strange from my side. He's not sleeping in forests anymore. He's safe. But he can't escape what's happening around him. The ongoing threat that the war could go nuclear. I can't sleep well. I have a couple of days ago, like, nightmares about the possibility of atom bomb. It was like a, a really a realistic nightmare. It maybe was one of the most realistic in my life. Later that evening... Ukraine's president says Russia's offensive has started in the east. Now we can state that the Russian forces have started the battle for the Donbass, for which they were preparing for a long time. A big part of all the Russian army is now concentrated on this offensive. It's the second phase of the conflict, centering on two provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk. 
that pro-Russian separatists took parts of in 2014. Now, Russia wants to finish the job. Ukrainian soldiers yesterday in the vast network of trenches in Donbass, trenches dug out first back in 2014. And the area where they're fighting, called the Donbass, is smaller and right on Russia's border. So it's easier to resupply. But Ukraine has some of its own advantages. For the past nearly two months, the US and its NATO allies have been careful about the kinds of weapons they've been giving Ukraine. They want it to win, but they don't want to provoke Russia into widening the war outside Ukraine's borders. But there are signs that that's changing. On the 25th of April, the US Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, is giving a press conference, and he's asked about America's aims in Ukraine. So they need uh, long-range fires. Uh, he starts by giving tanks, the standard line. And we are doing everything that we can to get them the types of support, the types of artillery and munitions that will be effective in this stage of the fight. But then, he had something new. Uh, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. So The US doesn't Ukraine. just want Russia to leave Ukraine. They want to make it harder for Moscow to project its power elsewhere in the world. And uh, we want to see them not have the capability to very quickly reproduce that capability. Over the next few weeks, new weapons start rolling in. Russia doesn't take this lying down. It's trying to find new ways to punish Ukraine's allies. And it turns to one of its most potent weapons, gas. On day 63, Moscow announces it's cutting Bulgaria and Poland off from Russian energy. Overnight, Russia's state-run energy giant Gazprom said it was turning off the taps on both countries because they refused to pay in rubles. Both will survive, but Russia's message echoes most in Berlin. Germany's economy is hugely reliant on Russian gas. Without it, business leaders warn the German economy could suffer its worst economic shock since the Second World War. And finding alternative suppliers could take years. Europe has found itself funding the same war it's condemning. The EU has also warned member states to prepare for a possible complete breakdown in gas supplies from Russia, insisting it would not cede to Moscow's demand to pay in rubles. Now, Kyiv says Russia's energy exports to Europe are funding the Kremlin war in Ukraine with millions of euros every day. The arrival of new weapons in Ukraine comes too late to save Mariupol. These Chechen fighters claim to have cleansed and destroyed Mariupol along with Russian forces. Day by day, Russia's slowly taken control of the city. Except for one part, the Azovstal plant, where thousands of soldiers and a few hundred civilians, including the Chekonatsky family, are still holed up, trying to survive. When the history of Russia's war in Ukraine is written, remember this name, Azovstal. The bloody standoff has been likened to the brutal World War II Battle of Stalingrad, when Soviet forces ultimately held out against Nazi invaders. Emma, what are the conditions like in the Azovstal plant as we get into May, into the 70th day of this war and beyond? What are things like for the Chekonatsky family and others sheltering there? The assault on Azovstal becomes so intense that even in the bunker, they feel 
the ground shaking above them. One time they go up and they see this unexploded missile lodged in the staircase. And they said, if that had exploded, we think it probably would have destroyed the bunker. We probably would have been buried. And so death is constantly very, very close to them. How are they possibly managing to survive? So basically, this community comes together. They had electricity for a few days, but then the electricity got cut off almost immediately. Their generator was destroyed in one of these bombings. So they have almost no light. They use car batteries, which they connect up to some LED lights. They have obviously no internet. They've got a tiny radio that picks up some long wave transmission. And the main thing is passing the time. Yegor, the dad, said to me, sleep's the only thing we haven't been deprived of. We say sleep more, eat less, because when you're asleep, you don't need to eat. By the end, they're down to having one tiny meal a day for the adults. So two cups of macaroni go into 10 litres of water, and that soup has to feed 30 people. And the kids eat twice a day. God, you said the family's two kids are 12 and 17. How are they coping with these conditions? So when we met this family, we also met this incredible woman who tried to keep the children's spirits up. She does a lot of the cooking, which in itself is very dangerous because they have to go outside to cook. At the end, when things get really intense and they decide it's too dangerous even to go outside, they set up this extraordinary improvised stove where they use empty cans and they burn hand sanitizer, which has a lot of alcohol in it. And she cooks for the kids. They call her Auntie Soup. She organises drawing competitions to try and keep their spirits up. And she said when they first were in the basement, the younger children wouldn't let the adults hug them. My God. The teenagers spend hours staring at the walls initially. But she did say that over time they sort of adjusted a little. One of the things they do to pass the time is the older kids start teaching the younger kids. I can't believe this family survived. How and when do they eventually get out of there? So they eventually leave towards the end of the fight for Azovstal. It becomes clear that there are still hundreds of civilians sheltering underneath. So for a while, the focus was sort of on the Azov battalion, the Ukrainians who were defending it. But some videos emerged of kids saying that they hadn't seen the daylight for weeks. So there was a concerted effort involving the Red Cross, the Ukrainian government, the Russian government to arrange evacuation convoys for people who are still trapped there. And... Everyone in their bunker, they hear on their shortwave radio that one of these convoys is going. And when they come above ground, the soldiers tell them, you've got to run, 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 because we've seen again and again these so-called green corridors are set up and then they're not respected. Russian forces attack them or evacuation plans are called off at the last minute. The soldiers tell them, you hardly have any time, you've got to run run now. So they have this terrifying race guided by soldiers across the sort of ruined landscape of Azovstal, shattered industrial plants, shattered buildings to where these buses are waiting. And they get on the buses. And finally, they are driven out of Mariupol. And the kids, they're already 
сумку лавкового листа и специй. А один? Да. Он еще муку взял и по пути ему было тяжело. you met them two days after they got out, around the 8th of May, the 74th day of the war. What was the family like, having got through that experience? There was obviously huge amounts of trauma and grief from this horror that they'd lived through, but you could also see that powerful love as a family for each other that had sustained them and their determination to keep going. I mean, I asked the dad what they were going to do next, and he said, our plan now is to keep on living. The rest will follow. Coming up, how the war has shifted in the past few weeks and what to expect from the next 100 days. Mariupol finally fell on the 17th of May, day 83. The Minister of Defence has reported to President of Russia on the end of the operation and the complete liberation of the Azovstal industrial complex and of the city of Mariupol from Ukrainian fighters. The Ukrainian army ordered the last fighters inside the Azovstal plant to surrender. It said they had done their job. They were put on buses and taken into Russia. They're in a prison colony. Nobody really knows what'll happen to them next. The Kremlin says those who've surrendered will be treated in line with international norms. Some Russian lawmakers have demanded they be tried for war crimes, and one said they should face the death penalty. The same day they laid down their guns and Russia claimed the city, the prime ministers of Sweden and Finland made an announcement. Finland and Sweden have submitted their NATO application today. It's a direct response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The two Nordic countries were going to join NATO, the Western alliance that Vladimir Putin says he started the war to push away from Russia's borders. Finland's border with Russia runs for 800 miles. If its application to join the alliance succeeds, that'll be a NATO border. For Russians who see NATO as an enemy, it's a disaster. And for once, the Russian public got to hear about it. On a panel show on Russian state TV, a retired colonel, Mikhail Kodayanok, had had enough. We shouldn't take informational tranquilizers, he said. The situation is this. The Ukrainians are able to arm a million people. They're being supplied with cutting-edge Western weapons. The presenter, very pro-Kremlin, is butting in now, trying to push the government line, but he's not having it. The situation for us will frankly get worse, he says. He adds later, the reality of our position is that we are in full geopolitical isolation and that, however much we hate to admit it, virtually the entire world is against us. By day 96, this time last week, nearly 7 million Ukrainians have become refugees. Only about a million have been able to come home. It's a displacement crisis on par with the Syrian civil war. But that took years. This has happened in three months. A Guardian correspondent, Sean Walker, has been in Ukraine over the past two weeks following the fighting. 
in Kharkiv, where unlike in Kiev, the Russian positions are still quite close to the town. You still have artillery coming into the town, very, very different atmosphere, very few people on the streets, still that sense of nervousness, nothing much open. And then, of course, down in the Donbass, in the slightly more southern eastern part of Ukraine, you have a full-scale, really unpleasant, bloody war that's still going on. The deputy defense minister saying fighting is now at what she calls maximum intensity. The enemy attacks our positions at different points simultaneously, she's saying. We are in for a very difficult and long stage of the struggle. And Sean, what are the key cities that Russia is trying to take at the moment? What kind of fighting is happening? Well, it looks pretty horrible, I think. I think with Severodonetsk, it's the last main city in Luhansk region that is not under Russian control. This is a city which Russia would have banked on being pro-Kremlin, with strong links and often with relatives living there. They are very reluctant evacuees, but they are fleeing in the face of this terrible onslaught. And then if and when they do take control of that or take control of the ruins of that, then we're really looking at these twin cities of Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, which are very close together to each other. They're in Donetsk region. And Kramatorsk has basically been, since 2014, the center of the Ukrainian army operations in the east of Ukraine. So it was very well defended, a lot of troops there. And I think that would be the next logical target. And Sean, you said that this is bloody grinding fighting. How are the Ukrainians doing? Because from afar, it looks like they're slowly losing their grip on these regions. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's clear that this is really messy. It's really unpleasant. The Ukrainians have been very, very cagey talking about their own losses during this war. But recently we heard President Zelensky say that he thinks 50 to 100 people are dying per day in Donbass. So, you know, that's up to 3,000 a month, if that's a reliable figure. It's a lot of losses. And I think the simple fact of it is that the Russians have much bigger and more powerful weapons, which is why we're hearing still these impassioned pleas from Ukrainian officials that they really need more weapons and they need them quickly. Otherwise, they are going to be overrun in Donbass. And Sean, in these territories that are already under Russian control, what are we seeing? How is Moscow trying to consolidate its rule? So we just saw a couple of days ago some people go to the outskirts of Melitopol and put up a sign saying Melitopol, Russian forever. And we hear talk of the ruble being introduced. We hear talk of areas moving onto Moscow time zones, passports being handed out. And of course, really sinister reports about house-to-house checks, people being forced to appear in confession videos if they previously had pro-Ukrainian views, now denouncing them. And Sean, how are the Ukrainians looking at the next few months? Like, Is there any possibility that they try to negotiate some kind of deal where they give away territory in order to secure a ceasefire? I mean, if you ask anyone on the streets in Kiev, will you give away territory to negotiate a ceasefire? The answer will be absolutely not. Where we are with that in two or three months, if things continue the way they have done, we'll have to see. Zelensky, in in his interviews, has sort of veered between, on the one hand, saying absolutely not, 
in no circumstances. In fact, we're even going to take back the territory that we lost in 2014. And then sometimes changing his tone a bit and saying, look, we know we need to win some victories on the battlefield. But of course, the next stage of this is going to be at the negotiations table. And of course, at that point, you have to look at whether there will be some deal that will at least postpone the issue of Crimea, for example, or the issue of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. But certainly there's no political appetite in Ukraine for that at the moment. And I think the main argument that many Ukrainians would give, and the last three months, a sort of a convincing reflection of that, is that no one can have any illusions anymore about what Putin thinks about Ukraine and what he wants to do with it. So any agreement people here worry would essentially just be giving Vladimir Putin time to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize, and it would just be basically putting off another invasion. Last week, just on the eve of the 100th day of this war, we managed to reach Kirillo Dimchenko, the young historian who'd had his first firefight the very day he joined the Ukrainian army. Day three of the war. Now, he's the sergeant of a logistics unit, and he's stationed in the east. He spoke to us. Right now, I'm in village, so opposite to me is small forest. It's like a typical rural landscape of Ukraine. And what is the feeling like, the morale among the soldiers that you're with? <clears throat> it is not romantic. Sometimes it is boring, sometimes it is difficult, but every moment I think that it is difficult. I remember guys in Mariupol, in Azovstal factory. I remember that there are a lot of soldiers in this war whose situation is much more difficult. And every moment I understand why I'm here. I'm not with glass of juice near to the sea, yeah, and I'm not in my favorite Carpathian mountains. But every moment when we are laughing with our colleagues from our company, every moment when we are thinking about our future after the war, when we are thinking about the future of our country, uh, this is <laughs> very positive emotions. And what kinds of people are there in your company? Our company was complected with different people from different cities, and all of them are very different in their money situation. All of them has different education and different professions. And right now we are together and it is interesting for me, like for historian, to see these amazing discussions between uh, our people. This is like a birth of new nation. And that's why generally emotions are not maybe positive, but they are full of some uh, hopes. A hundred days ago, you were a student. You had never fired a gun before. Does that old Carrillo still exist? Uh, difficult question. I don't know how to answer you. It is impossible to go back for the previous life, life before you were the soldier, and to rebuild this lifestyle before 24th of February 2022. So I understand that our life will never be the same. And where will you sleep tonight? 
tonight, this night will be great because I will sleep inside house, <laughs> not in the trenches. And okay, it will be on the floor, but it will be under the roof and without wind and without rain. And my guys will sleep in uh, trenches full of water. Tomorrow, maybe I will be with them, but today I have a night of relax. Carillo, I'm so glad we've been able to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Kirillo Demchenko, a young Ukrainian soldier stationed in the east of the country. Thank you so much to him, as well as to Vladimir Kasenich, who's still safe and well in Kyiv, as well as to Emma Graham Harrison and Sean Walker, whose coverage from Ukraine you can read at theguardian.com. There we also cover Europe's continuing efforts to wean itself off Russian energy. They've just signed a deal to partially embargo Russian oil. There you can also read a piece about the past 100 days of the war in Ukraine by me, Michael Safi, and Courtney Youssef. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo and Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.